we are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 11, verse 45, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, For context, over the last few months, we've been unpacking the first half of John's Gospel account in which he captures many things that Jesus did and said, but specifically he's recorded seven of the signs that Jesus performed for the Jewish nation. And as we mentioned last week, this isn't random. John isn't writing off the cuff, uh, but rather he selected the number seven because it signals completion or fullness. So if you were a Jewish reader and you were reading through these chapters and you got to the final and seventh sign that John has recorded for us, that should signal in your mind, ah, okay, this is sort of complete in the account that that John has given, and now it's time for the verdict. Now it's time for the response of the Jewish nation. And so after raising Lazarus from the dead, which is the seventh sign, the question looming in the background is how will the Jewish nation respond? And particularly the leadership, which direction are they going to go? Will they believe in Jesus and follow him? Or will they reject Jesus in the name of something else that they care about more? Uh, This is what we read next. This is ultimately their response. Picking up in chapter 11, verse 45. It says this, uh, Therefore, as a result of raising Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Lord, we open up our lives to you. Uh, We open up our hearts to you. We recognize that uh, living in this culture, like living in any culture, uh, we have to be counter-cultural in order to follow you. We recognize that the forces uh, working through uh, friends and neighbors and social media and most of the things that we would watch 
uh, or screen online are uh, subtly laced with messages that are a counter to the gospel or even subtly begin to undermine our faith or our part or our passion for you. And so as we come into this place, Lord, we open ourselves up uh, honestly and vulnerably before you and we just invite you to come in your power and your presence uh, and honestly to undo a lot of the things uh, that have been done to us, to uh, resurrect within our hearts, um, kingdom hearts, kingdom minds, resilient, passionate disciples in this place uh, who will not easily succumb to the forces of this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. In the opening lines of John's masterpiece, the drama and tragedy of the Incarnation are laid bare before us. If you really knew what was happening, John says, if you could really see things from heaven's perspective, that if you could grasp the significance of this moment, then you would bow down before Jesus in awe and wonder. But instead, we read that the world did not recognize him. And in the most tragic and ironic twist of all, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The people of God did not recognize God. He came to his own, but after explaining and displaying who he is, after all of the signs and miracles, after everything that's unfolded, the ultimate verdict is not acceptance, but execution. This is not how you would expect the story to unfold. The people who supposedly know God and love God and study God's word and sacrifice to God in the temple actually have no room in their lives for God. And if anyone on earth should have recognized God when he showed up in the, in the flesh, it should have been the high priest in the temple. If you just step back metaphorical the way it should be, what would you expect? Well, in the grand scheme of humanity, the person who should be, in theory, the closest to God would be the high priest at the temple in Jerusalem. No one on earth should be more in touch with God, should have a clearer view of who He is. 
And yet, in today's text, that very person is insistent that Jesus must die. You know nothing at all, the high priest says. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. This is the moment when the gavel drops. Uh, The verdict is in. After years of revealing himself to the Jewish nation, the final decision has been reached. Twelve chapters have led up to this moment. And from this moment forward, the fate of Jesus is sealed. He will be crucified sooner or later. And in the eyes of the leadership, the sooner the better. They have no legal basis for what they're doing. Uh, There is no clear legal charge that would lead to crucifixion or execution. But in their minds, it must be done because the fate of their nation depends on it. You see, the Romans ruled over Israel with an iron fist. And if Jesus were to cause unrest or cause an uprising, the Romans would likely come in light of everything that's happened between Israel and Rome up to this point. They would likely come and destroy their temple and destroy their nation. This is sort of their last chance to prove that they could be obedient to the empire. They are walking on eggshells. The Sanhedrin know what's at stake. And so Jesus must be sacrificed for the greater good. But of course, this statement and this conclusion, like so many things in John's gospel account, is loaded with irony. Consider this as some of the ironic uh, pieces that are unfolding here. Number one, uh, the high priest is plotting unspeakable evil, but he's playing perfectly into God's plan, and John says he was even prophesying without knowing it. That's very ironic based on the circumstances. Second, the religious leaders believe they are killing Jesus to save the nation. In reality, Jesus is laying his own life down to save that same nation, but in a very different way than they had envisioned. And third, the religious leaders think they are protecting the temple and the nation by destroying Jesus. In reality, they are condemning their temple and their nation. And in a few short years, the Romans will come and literally wipe Israel off the face of the map, destroying the temple in the process. And they will seek to be a a national political entity. They will be destroyed. And in fact, Jesus himself told his disciples in advance that this would happen. This is what he said. He said, as for what you see here in the temple, is where they're standing, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Keep in mind, the temple is the wonder of the world. It is a stunning piece of architecture. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? And he tells them, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. 
Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing moms. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And if you know your history, you'll know that all of this happens within a few years from the time that Jesus is resurrected and ascends back to the Father. The religious establishment is not protecting their nation by rejecting Jesus. They are sealing the fate of their nation. The temple and the Jewish nation have become fruitless. They have rejected God Himself. And by sentencing Jesus to death, they ensure that these things will come to pass. They think they're killing Jesus for the people. In reality, Jesus is dying to save the people. They think they're doing God a favor. In reality, they're killing God. They think they're protecting their political and religious establishments. In reality, they are sealing the fate of those entities. They are initiating a pattern that will play out again and again in the lives of Jesus' first disciples and in the lives of millions of disciples throughout history right up to this day. As we sit here this morning, Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. Why? Well, there are powers and principalities that are at war with the kingdom of God, that hate Jesus and the cross. Those are the powers behind the powers. That's what's happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm at the meta level. The Bible is actually very clear on that. But the way that this plays out on the visible human plane is that within the human world, political and spiritual leaders from every conceivable background all over the world want to stamp out Jesus and his followers and erase them from their cultural context. Because he is a threat to the system. It's better that one man die, or even that millions of men die, in order to protect the communist regime, or the Muslim culture, or the Hindu temples. At the end of the day, there's a similar pattern, the same thing that's happening with the high priest and with Jesus, as happening over and over again in thousands of different cultural contexts as people try to defend what they have. And the ends that they have in mind always justify the means. People will kill each other and kill Christians specifically 
by the millions in order to protect a national identity or a political ideal or simply to maintain the status quo and keep power and control in the hands of the people who have it. In Soviet Russia alone, as a case study, millions and millions of people died at the hands of their own government in the name of creating some sort of communist utopia. But in the moment, you could have said, why are millions of people being put to death? Why are certain classes starving to death by the millions? Why is this place hell on earth? And the answer behind it was that they had a political ideal that they were trying to protect. And they cared more about their nation and their political ideals and institutions than they did about people. If you were a Christian in that system or any communist system today, then you need to be eliminated because Jesus and the kingdom are a threat to that system. It's better that 20 million people die than to have our nation or political identity be threatened or undermined. Even in our own nation, we have a radical left that seeks to wipe Jesus and Christianity out of the culture. And we have a radical right that often warps Jesus and co-ops him to support their nationalistic ideals. In fact, in recent years on the far right, Jesus has become so warped and watered down that now when I hear people on that end of the spectrum say, God bless America, I honestly don't know anymore which one they care more about. God or America. It's become very blurry in that subculture. Which one are you more excited about? If you had to choose one or the other, which one would you choose? It's not clear. But if Jesus came in flesh and blood today, in the same way that he came in the first century, I think he would be rejected by the far left and the far right as a threat to their political agendas. Better to eliminate one man than have all of our political momentum and identity undermined. The far left fears Jesus because he's grounded in objective truth that conflicts with their version of reality. But the far right fears Jesus because he says crazy stuff about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, and putting the needs of others, even foreigners in other countries, putting their needs above yours. And, and that is nails on a chalkboard in the subculture of, of militant nationalism. When, when you get to the far ends of America's political spectrum, both of them now clash with Jesus and the kingdom of God, and they have to choose. Do, do we keep our political momentum and political ideals, or, or do we chase after Jesus? Jesus.
better to sacrifice one man and his followers for the sake of what we actually want, what we truly want. The forces at work in the high priest and the Sanhedrin are not so foreign to us as they might seem. People love power, and people are more perceptive than we give them credit for. People all over the world, in a thousand different cultural contexts, intuitively sense that Jesus and the kingdom of God will be a threat to the earthly kingdoms which they are trying to build. And it's better that one man and his followers are done away with for the sake of our earthly kingdoms than to have our earthly kingdoms suffer. That's the end goal, and the end always justifies the means. Whether it's communism or nationalism or hedonism, whatever the ism is, the same pattern plays out. We do the same things for the same reasons. So what does this mean practically for us? How does this affect life on Monday morning? First off, expect opposition to the gospel. Because what we see in the passage we read this morning is that when all the evidence was laid out by Jesus himself, it says that many believed, which is awesome, but those in power decided to destroy him. And Jesus says, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. So as followers of Jesus in our cultural context, in virtually any cultural context, we have to be prepared for this. We have to be ready to face rejection from the many centers of power in our world because we care more about Jesus and the eternal kingdom of God than we do about the earthly kingdoms that they are attempting to build. As soon as people pick up on that, they will reject you. And that's okay. We care more about the kingdom of God than any earthly political ideal or earthly kingdom. We have to expect backlash from that. And finally, as the people of God, we pray for the persecuted and we pray for their persecutors. And that's actually how I want to end this morning. All over the world, right now, millions of Christians are being openly persecuted attacked, mocked, beaten, and arrested for following Jesus. Uh, I think of Pastor the Regions Beyond Pastor who we prayed for several weeks ago in Tanzania, who was attacked by militant Muslims in the place where they're attempting to minister. Uh, he was attacked with a machete. His house was burned down. All his possessions were taken. And we took time to pray for him and his family. But in that circumstance, of course, we pray for him and his family and his resiliency and his resolve. He said, I don't want to leave. God's called us to love and serve these people. This is where I'm meant to be. I'm not leaving. 
So we're praying for him and his family as, as the persecuted, but we're also praying for his persecutors in that place. It's both. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being eliminated for the same reasons that the high priest tried to eliminate Jesus. Sacrifice for, for some cultural ideal that they have in mind. But we also remember in the process that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and powers and authorities behind those systems. We remember that Jesus died to save his persecutors, not just his disciples. And as he dies on the cross, he prays for them. He doesn't just pray for his disciples who are looking on horrified. Father, would you protect them because they're next? He prays those things over his disciples, but on the cross, he, he actually prays for the high priest, for the Pharisees, for the Romans, for the people who placed him there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what he's praying. So I want us to take some time this morning before we head to the communion table to pray. And these are some of the things that you can pray for. We can pray for ourselves and other followers of Jesus in our culture who are currently falling away from faith at staggering rates or seeing people cave to social pressure. We can pray for the physically persecuted church around the world our brothers and sisters, uh, many of whom we can lift up by name. If you know specific people and specific nations who are being physically persecuted, we want to pray for them this morning. And finally, I want us to pray for their persecutors, uh, for the people who oppose them, but who need Jesus desperately. Pastor Mike, and other regions beyond pastors have continued to reach out to their Muslim neighbors in Tanzania. And they recently went and spent time in a village in southern Tanzania. It's 99% Muslim. Same as the people who have been persecuting them in that country. But they continue to stay in this village for a number of weeks and to witness to them. Uh, and in this village, there's not a single follower of Jesus. Uh, obviously, in light of that, there's not a single church, but God met them over these last few weeks in that place. They've seen people physically healed in Jesus' name. They've seen people freed, demons cast out of people, freed from demonic possession. They've seen 26 people in this village give their lives to Jesus. And as they went to leave, one of the pastors decided to stay. He said, I'm going to stay in this village. I'm going to lead this new church. There's now a church of 26 brand new followers of Jesus in, in the middle of this Muslim village. It's the first church they've ever had there. How does that happen? 
it happens when, when real people are saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they decide to stay and love people the way that Jesus would love people. So we're going to take a few minutes to pray this morning. I'd encourage you as we close, I'll say a quick prayer for us, and then I'd encourage you to break into groups of, say, four or five. If you're new to River's Edge or you're new to following Jesus or you just are terrified to pray out loud, you don't have to pray out loud. But we're going to take about 10 to 12 minutes here, which is going to go really fast. And as you get into your group and start praying, Honestly, each one of us is probably going to be able to pick one of the things off this list and just begin lifting that up in prayer. And we're going to take a few minutes. If you know specific names of specific people who are being persecuted, uh, per it, it could be in this country, could be facing social pressure and they're feeling like they're deconstructing their faith and walking away from God. Let's pray for those people by name. If you know people in foreign countries, who are being physically persecuted for their faith and pressured in different ways, uh, let's lift them up by name. Anyone who you can think of who's, who's in a sense, uh, standing before some high priest or another and hearing, hey, it's better that you get eliminated for the sake of our culture, for the sake of our religion, for the sake of our political ideals. We're going to take a few minutes and pray for those people. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll break into groups. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you... We're not afraid, Lord, that you uh, came to Jerusalem this final time uh, knowing that you, you were laying your life down. You said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly for the sake of the Father, for the sake of the kingdom, uh, for the sake of the cross and resurrection that are to come. And Lord, we know right now this morning there are millions of your followers all over the world who are saying similar things. Hey, I could walk away from my faith. I could pretend not to be a disciple of Jesus, or I could stay and be salt and light in this place. But guess what? Nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down for the sake of the Father, for the sake of Jesus and His kingdom, for the sake of seeing other people ushered into eternal life. And so, Lord, would you soften our hearts for our brothers and sisters in this country, uh, both the persecutors, in a sense, and the persecuted? Would you soften our hearts for those around the world who are being persecuted this morning and for their persecutors, Lord, who need you desperately in order to, to be forgiven and restored and transformed and have hope beyond death? Soften our hearts for them now as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.